Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Can I answer that by talking about other books that I've read recently? A book is always an answer, Jordan. <laughs> okay, a book is an answer. Yes, I came to the right place. Hey, readers. I'm Ann Vogel, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 127. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Jordan Bradley gets great book recommendations from his wife and from his local library, but isn't quite sure how to strike out on his own to find books that won't let him down. In today's episode, we're talking history, politics, education, futuristic fiction, far-flung expeditions, and using all the intel we gather to chart a course toward his happy reading island. If that sounds like an adventure you want to go on with us, and I hope it is, this is a delight. Let's get to it. Jordan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Anne. It's great to speak to my wife's longtime friend from the internet. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. God bless the internet. So many readers tell me they just don't have people who love reading as much as they do in their everyday lives. And so they take to podcasts and blogs and book lists online. Is your wife one of those people? Yes, my wife is an avid reader. She's been reading your blog since, I would guess, since it started. And for a long time, she's always introduced your blogs to me with... My friend Anne said, <laughs> love it, but we're, we're friends now too. So it's our friend Anne. We're fortunate because we're both avid readers, but I've been reading for school. So my topics have been dry for a while and she has different tastes, <laughs> <laughs> more exciting tastes, I should say. Well, I mean, I don't know. A PhD is nothing to sneeze at. So yours is in political philosophy? Correct. How long ago did you get that? Did you finish? I finished my dissertation last March and I was awarded my degree in December. So that just happened. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. So tell me how you happened to pursue a PhD in that field. Long story. <laughs> the short version is I lived in Italy for a while and I met some wonderful people there, but one of them was a young kid when World War II happened and he left school in second grade and he was too embarrassed to go back to third grade as a 13 or 14 year old. And so he just taught himself to read and he was a voracious reader. He had three huge bookshelves up on his house and every time I'd go, he knew exactly where every book was. He loved talking about his books and he loved his philosophy books. So I, I was talking with him and I just really enjoyed those conversations. And when I got back uh, stateside, 
I took uh, a few classes and I met a wonderful professor at Boise State where I was doing my undergraduate and he convinced me to come to the political philosophy dark side and I've been there ever since. Okay, so when one is studying political philosophy for many, many years, I imagine it took you years to get your PhD. Yes, from start to finish, it took about 10, but I took some time off in between there. When Raylene and I first got married, she was about to start her master's degree in English, but I talked her into marrying me instead, which I am very fortunate that she chose me over English. (laughs) That is love. It is true love, but I promised her that we would make the space for her to get her master's degree. And I finished my coursework. Uh, Our second child had just been born and we we were looking at the timing. And I said, well, I finished my coursework. I can either take two years off now so you can do your master's or I'm afraid it's going to be 20 years when the kids have grown up, when we can make time again and who knows what's going to happen in between. And so we made the time so that she could go to UNLV and pursue her master's there. And I took time off to run our family business and, and take care of the kids. Uh, and then I started up again. It took a little while to get the momentum going again. It's really hard to break momentum in a uh, PhD program, which I only learned after the fact. But I'm really glad that we were able to make that space. And I learned a lot from her degree as well. So it's been wonderful for both of us. When I was in graduate school, we didn't have any money, which is a typical graduate student problem. When we were undergraduates, we both worked at a sign shop in Idaho. Raylene learned graphic design there. I learned a little bit as well. She had some ideas to take the professional signage graphics program and create products that were for home decor. And so I bought a book and taught myself how to build websites, and we built the website. Uh, And that's been growing for us well. We've been doing that for uh, over 10 years now. And so we run wallquotes.com, everything from little inspirational phrases for your home or your nursery to big mission statements for corporations. And it won't stress grammar geeks out because we can trust Raylene to always put the apostrophes in the right places. <laughs> Raylene and I do our best to make sure that the grammar is always appropriate. We have had a couple mishaps over the years. <laughs> 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 but we fix it. We're always doing our best to make sure things are grammatically correct. So Jordan, you came to me with a request, which was to get out of your doctorate-induced reading rut. So what I really want to know is what have you been reading for basically the last 10 years? For the last 10 years, it has been philosophy or history texts. My secondary field has been American government, and I focus largely on institutions. So I read a lot about the presidency, Congress, American history, American political development. Those have been my fun reads. When I finished my master's degree, we had the summer off and I read Hobbes for fun Uh because that's what I do. But yeah, I've been trying in the last two years to read more novels because I really felt like I was struggling to read books that were enjoyable, which is not to say that I don't find my philosophy texts enjoyable, but they they weren't filling a need that I felt that I I still can't quite put into words. Oh, of course, that's what I wanted to know. I I, I just I, I feel like I need to see the world through something beyond just thinking about the great ideas of the world, see the p- people's experiences in the world. You don't find that when you're reading the big ideas. You you see the forest and you lose the trees for it. And I I feel like I need to get away from that for a bit and see the individual human experience. And you feel like that's something that a novel can do for you? Raylene's recommended a few that I think have done that, that, that have been very good. But what, what has she recommended? <laughs> uh, I'd have to look at my bookshelf to see what I've read. Oh, I hear you on that. Like she, had me, she had me read, uh, it's the professor, uh, he's the professor in Australia, and then he travels to New York. The Rosie Project? Yeah, she had me read that one, and that one was fun. That, like, I never would have picked that one up. 
She recommended the uh, Lois Penny ones, and I've read the first four of those. Mm-hmm. All the Light We Cannot See was wonderful. I, I loved that. Those are the ones that come to me off the top of my head. Those are not books I would have put together on a shelf, and I have a lot of questions for you, but I feel like I need more data first. So we're going to wait and talk about your favorites. Jordan, what is it about the novel that appeals to you as opposed to, say, like a memoir? Can that carry the same power for you as a reading experience that really like brings the big picture issues down and condenses them into one human life? I think yes and no. I wouldn't immediately pick up a memoir and say, this is something that I want to read. There are a couple that I've read that I've enjoyed, but it took a while for me to enjoy them. I can't remember the author's name, but there's one called Room for Improvement that Raylene got me several years ago. The author talks about his experiences with sporting from when he started running on his own. He did some marathons, nature camps as a child where he did paddling and outdoor survival and things like that. I read it and I was like, I I didn't enjoy the author's voice. I felt it was a little self-centered, which, you know, a memoir is because you're talking about yourself. Mm -hmm. But that book has really stuck with me over the years. And there was a point where I was struggling to write my dissertation. I just felt bogged down trying to handle work and kids felt like I couldn't find my voice writing. And there's a passage where he was talking about writing a book and he was talking about his friends who were also professors. And he saw that the dissertation was an extension of themselves. They wrote it because that's who they were. And it wasn't something that they just had to create whole cloth. It was just something that they put down on the paper because that's who they were as a person. And I realized that I was fighting against that. I wasn't writing what I am. I was writing what I imagined this perfect version of what I was capable of writing would be. And I couldn't find the perfectness that I wanted. And I stopped trying to be perfect and it came out so much better. So that memoir really unlocked a problem. And that was that was great. But when I read it, I didn't realize that it took several years for me to see that. That is really interesting. Did that change the way you read? Having that experience where you didn't particularly enjoy a book at the time and yet had it end up meaning so much to you several years later, does that change the way you think about what you're actively reading? This is why it is so hard for me to quit a book. I, I, <laughs> I need professional help when it comes to quitting books because partly is the professional discipline that I've had to learn. I have read books for so long that I might not agree with the conclusions or I'm not particularly interested in the field, but it is adjacent to a field I'm studying. And so as an academic, I need to understand what the literature says about this. And so I developed this discipline to read things that I don't like and I don't enjoy and that I just need to find the value in. As I'm trying to read fiction, I find myself reading books that I'm just not enjoying because I've developed that discipline and I need help to break that. (laughs) But on the other side, yes, like there is value in that because there have been some books that I didn't enjoy reading where I found something good in or I, I saw I could do this better and I need to think about this question better because of the fault that I saw in this book. And so you can learn from inadequate books, but I have a problem of reading too many of them. So what percentage of books are we talking about here that are a slog? The last year and trying to read widely and read beyond what I normally read, mm-hmm. ha- half of what I've read has been a slog. I finished a book yesterday that I truly hated, but we can talk <laughs> about that later. Uh, oh, I can't wait to hear. Uh, yes. Yeah, I've been trying to read outside of what I would normally pick up. A lot of what I've been picking up has been off of the library and recommendation shelf. Mm-hmm. At our library, there's this beautiful corner that attracts me like a mosquito to a blue light. And I go in there every time and I look at the library recommendations. And I found a couple of books that I've loved on there and I have a couple that I've slogged through. But there was one that I finished a couple months ago now called Every Word is a Bird We Teach to Sing. 
and I'm sorry, I don't remember the author's name off the top of my head. That was a series of essays on linguistics, and it was the author's study of various languages, experience in translations, and experience in learning other languages on trips. I'm glad that I read that, but I had to pace myself through there. I had to like force myself through an essay and then take a break for a day or two. It wasn't a page turner, but I'm, I'm still glad that I read it. Okay. I have so many questions for you, but I think first we need to dive into your favorites and not favorites. Are you ready? Yes, ma'am. Okay. You know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately, and then we will attempt to find some books that won't be slogs for you to read next. Jordan, let's start with your favorites. What's your first love? I love a book with a good subtitle. That's the academic in me. It's not a title if it doesn't have a colon in it. Uh, But it's Lawrence in Arabia, War, Deceit, Imperial Folly, and the Making of the Modern Middle East. This is nonfiction, and it's indicative of what I usually pick up when I want to read. I do like sweeping nonfiction, big historical books. Raylene and I joke when she goes to pick up an audio book, she looks to see if it's less than six or seven hours. And then she's like, yeah, that's for me. And if it's less than 15, I'm like, oh, I'm not sure that I want to get in. <laughs> but in, in any case, this book's wonderful. It talks about uh, Lawrence's experience in the First World War. It follows his actions through there, but it reads like a novel because it goes through all the tangential characters and the decisions that they made. And you really get this broad picture of everything that was going on in the Middle East and how the Ottoman Empire was involved and how it fell and how the British Empire was involved and how it broke up and how the French imperial forces were involved and they broke up. And really no nation that was involved in this existed anymore after this war. I had the opportunity to go to Jordan last year with my brother-in-law and reading this book helped me make sense of so much of the history there and so much of the current circumstances. I don't think that we talk about it enough. It's it's easier to read stories about World War II because we know what the evil is. We know what the stakes are, but we kind of pass over World War One because it's harder to make sense of all that. But I, I, I loved this book. I loved how it made all of that real. Uh, and it was a page turner, even though it's, it's all true. Yes. I've heard it said that this one reads like a political thriller. Yes. Okay, so this is a book you love, but not something you want to find more of. I think that I find this on my own. Like mm-hmm. This is where I've developed my, I guess, specialty enjoyment. I can ferret these books out on my own. And when I go to a bookstore, I kind of naturally gravitate towards that section, the historical section or, or the politics section. Mm-hmm. I, I can find what I love in this section when I want to read it. You're good at picking out this kind of book and have it not be a slog. Yes. I would say like 90% of the time, I get it right. Oh, that's fantastic. Those are great odds. In in that narrow field. That's great, though, just to have some kind of island of happy reading life. You can branch out from there. Jordan, what's up next? The next is Eowyn Ivy's To the Bright Edge of the World. Uh-huh. And this is one I found on the library recommendation shelf. I picked it up because it talked about an Alaskan adventure in the 1800s. And I thought, I want to read about roughing it in Alaska. So first of all, the format is diary entries and letters between the wife of this captain who's going on the adventure who she gets pregnant early in the book. So this is not spoilery. Uh, She gets pregnant and stays at the military camp and he doesn't get to come on the expedition with him. Uh, And he goes up to Alaska to explore this new land that the United States has purchased. There are also two other characters who 
have the family heirlooms. One is a descendant of this captain, and then another is a docent at a museum where the great-great-grandson of these two main characters, he's inherited all these artifacts from them, and he wants to put them in a museum because he doesn't have any kids. He doesn't have anybody else to pass this on to. He wants to make sure that this knowledge of Alaska and of his family's involvement of it doesn't disappear. The first hundred pages or so are really focused on the barracks in, in Vancouver and, and staying home and the regret of not getting to go on adventure. And after those first hundred pages, the book is excellent. All the characters come alive. It's not like the female protagonist, which I can't remember her name. It's not, it's not like mm-hmm. she disappears. Instead of somebody who's just lamenting staying at home and not getting to go on this adventure, she takes up her own interests and she starts developing an interest in photography. And there's some amazing, beautiful parts in that. And then the captain's side, you get to see this magical world in Alaska. The way we think about the world is not the way the Indians he meet up there think about the world. And because mm-hmm. they think about the world differently, the world presents itself differently. And this captain is one of the last people to see the world present itself in that way because new people who think differently about the world are coming up there. And because they're bringing new ideas, the world is going to change. And so you get to see this last glimpse of a wild land before it changes. Do you tend to like adventure writing? Yes. And I feel guilty about it sometimes. Oh, yeah? I like books where place is a character where the setting is important and the setting changes the characters. I, I really like the idea of these big sweeping adventures where they're searching for a mystery and they're going across different places and trying to find the clue and move move on to the next place. I like that, but so often I feel like that's a technique that's used to hide poor writing or poor character development. Mm-hmm. I feel guilty when I like it. <laughs> One of the many times I was struggling during my dissertation, I felt bogged down. My my dissertation chair told me that I wasn't allowed to read any academic books, that I I had to read two dime store novels and report back to him on the dime store novels before I could uh, continue working on my dissertation. And I picked up William Dietrich's it's an Ethan Gage series is, uh-huh. is what it's called. And I read the first couple of those. Those are fun historical fiction things. I, Ethan Gage is not a character to model anything off of. And he's, <laughs> he's quite the rake. But it was fun. I do enjoy those. But I'm not terribly proud of enjoying them. <laughs> okay. I've had that experience where I cannot turn the pages on a book fast enough, but I'm kind of mad that that's the case because I don't think it's good. But it's like killing it on the narrative drive. I hear you. So a plot-driven novel is a good thing for you, but you don't want that to be at the expense of character development. Yes. Okay. Okay. I mean, it sounds so easy in theory. It's really hard to find in practice. <laughs> Glad it's not just me being a bad finder, that it is, that it is something that's hard to find. <laughs> what rounds out your favorites list? My third favorite is Exit West by Mahin Hamid. Uh-huh. I don't often have an emotional response to things I read, but this book made me cry. I found it just beautiful and moving. When I've heard other people talk about this book, I've heard that they've loved the magical realism of it. And that didn't appeal to me. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not why I liked it. Like I understand the device of the doors so the characters can move from one place to another. But what I really loved seeing was how the characters, in trying to fit in where they were at, they were trying to find themselves as well. And they were just trying to live and live a peaceful and a good life. Each place that changed them. They had to live differently. And they grew into different people because of that. There's that element of choice there and the choices that each of them made that it made it beautiful for me because you could see how they were trying to make the best decisions that were available for them. And they did. They grew into great people, but they grew apart because of it, the the two main characters there. 
that's what was emotional for me was just seeing how at the at the same time that they were trying to be the best people that they could that they they grew apart because they couldn't stay together as they grew into to the best people that they could be in response to all the moves that they were forced to take to find a place where they could just live peacefully. Okay, this question is going to sound kind of weird, but do you enjoy that's the weird word reading books about people in impossible situations? <laughs> uh how about, do you find them riveting and engaging and good for your reading life, even if they make you cry? So I, I don't know. Can I, can I answer that by talking about other books that I've read recently? A book is always an answer, Jordan. I recently read two books by Cormac McCarthy this Christmas break, uh-huh. and they're the first books I've read by him. And I, when you said impossible situations, those are the books that came to mind because I, I read The Road and No Country for Old Men. Yeah. I felt like I had to push through both of them, mm-hmm. but I'm glad that I read both of them. They didn't engage the same emotional response from me that uh, Exit West did, but I'm willing to push through those books to see how and why somebody goes through those impossible situations and why they do it. Like The Road, I don't think anybody would describe that as a hopeful book. But for me, it is a book about hope. And why do human beings hope? Like that is a miserable and impossible situation. And why did that dad keep striving? Why didn't he make the same decision that the mom made? I think that those are important questions. And I like being asked those questions. I like being forced to answer those questions. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to pick up books like that. But like, it, wasn't, it wasn't a page turner, but I'm glad that I read it. Mm-hmm. Okay, Jordan, tell me about a book that you're not so crazy about. So up until yesterday, the answer was Philip Caputo's <laughs> Sunrise by Saint. I love that this is so fresh. Okay, tell me about Caputo. This is another book that I picked up off of the library recommendation shelf. Uh-huh. This is a story about a priest in northern Mexico. Uh, he's an American priest, and he goes down there, and you meet a whole cast of characters, a couple of Americans that have moved down to this little city just trying to live their lives, and there are drug wars and cartels fighting and there's a federal military force that's moved in that's fighting against the drug lords there are also some vigilante fighters from the city that have been trying to fight against the drug people and so there's all this infighting that's going on that's causing a lot of instability and the priest is trying to create a sense of community and bring a sense of normalcy to this difficult situation i was drawn in by that story i mean that's <clears throat> that's a very real story those those things are happening there but the story itself i just didn't find any of the characters real they didn't make sensible decisions and it seemed like the character of the characters was very scattershot so that it could talk about a lot of different relevant topics there there, there are all these different characters that are that are motivated by different things and it's so scattershot that you didn't get a good development of any of the characters. And it, so it seemed just like it was all trying to be relevant, but none of it was meaningful. It didn't tell me anything deeply true about any of these characters. And then by the end, the priest, all of it is set up so that the summarize by sin is a couplet of a verse where it's others by virtue fall. And so spoiler alert, the priest tries to make what he thinks is the right decision and it causes things to go bad. But it didn't make sense why any of that did. It was really, it felt like it was shoehorning the story into connecting the title with this couplet of the verse, which Caputo reveals at the end. I didn't like it. Do you like characters you can root for? I'm okay with anti-heroes. I just, I didn't feel like these characters were real. I can understand if a character makes a bad decision, mm-hmm. if 
it makes sense with their character. You've got to go a lot more in depth in explaining why I don't feel like the priest was a real person, but he was just bouncing around all over the place and struggling with his own sense of faith at the same time that he was trying to inculcate a sense of faith uh, into his followers. There were incongruities there that I didn't like. I didn't, I didn't feel like the characters made any sense, and I feel like it was all written to drive towards this final reveal right. of an artistic pairing of this couplet from a poem rather than actually having real characters that were living real lives that could show me something about human being. Sometimes when I'm reading a book, I feel like the only reason a character is making the decision they are in the moment or persists in making a certain kind of decision or just can't seem to grasp the truth is because that would mean the book is over. And so the only reason that they're doing what they're doing is because it serves the plot and it doesn't feel like it serves the character. Yes. I hate when that happens. That was this book. (laughs) Okay. That was Sunrise by Sin. It got unseated yesterday. Yes. What happened? I finished reading Autonomous by Annalie Newitz and that book is truly awful. (laughs) I don't know this one. It's part of a deluge that I'm going through right now. I had all these books on the library hold and overdrive all come in at once. Uh, You had an episode last fall, I think. There was a gentleman who recommended Carl Schroeder's Lockstep. Yeah. And I went in and I got that. Absolutely loved that book. Oh, good. Okay. That was Keith Watts' episode. I'm glad you loved it. The character development was fantastic. The world development was fantastic. I, I loved everything about that book. But when I was in there, the library website made a recommendation for this autonomous book. And the blurb is, it's 2144. There's a patent pirate who's fighting to bring drugs to people who can't afford them and is being chased down by an agent of the drug companies and his robot. And so you get to see this future world with a Robin Hood-esque story. And I was like, okay, that's worth trying out. Intellectual property laws, we need to think about those better. And certainly the way that we're applying intellectual property laws to biotechnology, it's problematic. We need to change that. I would be interested in seeing this technology writer's take on it. And it was truly awful. The characters are so incredibly flat. And the the book is about setting. It's about showing what this author thinks the future is going to be like. So you have these characters walk into a room. And rather than walking into a room and having an interaction between the characters, you get like a CES style report on here's the technology layout of all these booths. And here's the technology that's in each booth. And here's what the technology can do. And by the way, the characters have exchanged a few words with each other. And then it tries to make a couple other moral equivalencies at the end that are terrible as well. But <laughs> I, the, the characters are bad. The moral of the story is bad. The development of the characters is horrible. And it's a book that exists to talk about this conception of the future with no meaning. Like, how did we get to this? What were the choices that we made to get to this future? It doesn't answer those questions. And it doesn't make sense of why the world is this way or why it continues to be this way. I I just, I I hated it. Okay, so you like books where place is a character, but that doesn't make a novel. No, it does not. Okay. Okay, Jordan, is it true, your bold claim, that you have only ever not finished a single book? I just added a second book to that. But yes. Did you not finish Autonomous? No, I finished Autonomous. I started reading uh, Dan Brown's Origins yesterday because I was like, I need a fun book to cleanse my palate. And I was angry at Autonomous. And I (laughs) I started reading it and I was like, nope, this isn't for me. Went back and forth for an hour about it. And my brother was like, quit it, quit it, just let it go. And Raylene was telling me to let it go. So I let my support group talk me into letting it go. I'm not going to pick it back up. So that's that's two. 
So I am catching you at a momentous period in your life, clearly. Yes, where, where the number of books that I have not finished in my life has now doubled. All right. What was the first one? It was Henry uh, Thoreau's Walden. It was the first book that I never finished. When did that happen? I officially gave up on it last year. but <laughs> <laughs> I like the way you phrased that. Because I had to be talked into taking it off my bookshelf and giving up on it because I kept feeling guilty for not getting back to it. I started reading it two or three years ago. Uh, It was the summer that we were working on buying the farm. That summer, we were living homeless out of our car. The quick story is the seller for the farm wouldn't take our offer unless our house sold. He wouldn't take a contingent offer. So we sold our house. And then there was an issue with the foundation of the house and the purchase of the farm fell through. So we were homeless and we lived out of our Subaru for several months. And we took the kids camping all over the West Coast as we lived out of our car uh, so that they wouldn't know we were living out of our car. (laughs) There was one day we were driving along the Oregon coast and we'd been camping and we stopped by, I think we were in Newport. We stopped in a used bookstore and we were looking around and I was like, you know... I've been there like three weeks ago. Excellent. It's just a beautiful place and I, I just had this epiphany. I was like, you know, like I'm living out of my car. I'm in a tent. I should be reading Thoreau's Walden. I'm living this life right now. And, oh, no. <laughs> Like the tone is terribly pompous and I feel like it was all braggadocio and it wasn't anything that was talking about what it meant to live a more simple life and what it meant to make the conscious decision to step out of society in a way that you still were living in society, but you weren't making the easy social choices of advancing with technology or putting it in modern perspective, that you aren't going to worry about giving your kids devices all the time, or you aren't going to worry about running to practices from five o'clock till 1030, that you're going to try to step out and you're going to make a conscious decision to have a slower life. I was thinking that it was going to be more about that. And it was, it was not, I didn't like anything about it. Well, I like your bold action on an American classic. (laughs) So, Jordan, I feel like you know what you want to be different in your reading life. So you've got politics nailed. You've got history nailed. You know where to find the books that you know you're going to like in the bookstore or the library. But for those books where you want to push your reading boundaries, you need some ideas. I'm at a total loss. Okay. Well, I mean, it sounds like you live with a pretty good book recommender. Raylene is fantastic. My friends both need help branching out. (laughs) Jordan, what are you reading right now? I am reading a couple things. I tend to read a lot of different books at once. I guess I guess that makes me a situational reader. It depends on how much brain power I have mm-hmm. to dedicate to it. Mm-hmm. I'm reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne with my boys. At night, we read a chapter. Every now and then, I should be better about reading regularly, but we, we get in a couple. That's been really fun with them. With my daughter, I'm reading the Dr. Seuss, the tooth book every single time I put her to bed. That's not fun. (laughs) Uh, And then for myself, I'm reading, I've got two books that I'm working on. One is In Other Words by Jhumpa Lahiri. Raylene got this for me for Father's Day and I picked it up and started reading it over Christmas and I love this. So Raylene and I both lived in Italy. That's where we met. So we both speak Italian. And this book, the left page is in Italian and the right page is in English. And she's writing about her experience of falling in love with the Italian language and making the decision to move there. I'm about halfway through it. I think. And it's beautiful. She's had some really beautiful essays on how language is a, is a place, how it takes you to that place and changes who you are because it changes the way you think. And I, I really like that about being able to speak other languages. Is I taught Italian for a while when I lived in Nevada. And something that my students 
didn't understand at the beginning and I tried to convey to them was that when you are learning to speak another language, it's not just taking the same words that you think in and translating them to their equivalent word, but it's really learning to think differently. And as you learn another language, you see the world differently and think about interactions differently. This, in other words, book really captures that and explains it in a beautiful way. I mean, I'm just reading the Italian side. Every now and then there's a word that I don't know and isn't in the dictionary that I have. And so I look over to see what the English equivalent is. I'm not 100% sure how great the English side is, but I imagine that it's wonderful as well. But I, I really am enjoying this book. Side note, I think I recommended that on, I mean, I know I recommended it, but I don't think that episode has aired yet. So that's fun. Okay. Recommend it. I, I love it. I just skipped over the Italian when I read it myself, but that's really cool that you and your wife could read it. Yeah. Yeah. And so then the other book that I'm reading is The Unquiet Dead by Ausma Zenehat Khan. And I found her again on a library and recommended shelf. She has a series. I think it's up to the fourth book. And I started with a third book, Among the Ruins, last year. And that one is set in Tehran. Beautiful uh, picture of what Persia is like as a country and what a dangerous, scary place it is as a state. Uh, and so The Unquiet Dead is the first book in the series. This one is set in Toronto. And so the characters in this book are, there are two detectives, and I'm still figuring out the mystery. There's been a parent suicide that they don't think is a suicide, and they're working through and, and trying to figure this out. You know, it's it's great. And one of the detectives plays hockey. And <laughs> what's, not, what's not to love other than Canadian hockey players? I've been reading these murder mysteries with reading several uh, Lois Pennies and reading this one right now. And... I like these ones because of the character development, because they ask questions about why the characters made the choices they made. The mystery is nice, but for me, it's not trying to figure out the mystery. It's seeing the development of the characters. I think that that's why I'm, I've been enjoying these, this genre. All right. Your request seems daunting, but I'm ready to rise to the challenge. If you're ready to dive in. Please help me. You're my <laughs> label. Okay. First, a throwaway pick. Have you heard of Walden on Wheels by Ken Ogunis? I have not. Okay. So I like this for you because I think having lived out of your Subaru for a couple months going up and down the Pacific coast, you may relate to this both on a like fun philosophical level and also on a, oh my gosh, we did that kind of level. So this memoir is maybe five years old and it's written by a guy who graduated from, I think a university in New York and he had... I mean, it wasn't like seven figures of student debt, but it was a hefty amount. And he wanted to get out of debt as quickly as possible. And therefore, he ended up living in his car, um, driving across the continent, working at any number of um, not terribly well-connected jobs, and waxing poetic on college education and student debt, the realities of not being able to find a job necessarily with a degree, and what that does to a person so you've got a little bit of philosophy, but I mostly like this for the fun travel three-year experiment living out of his car, paying off the debt quickly thing. It's not terribly short. It probably clocks in at like the average book length, 300 pages, but it goes really, really quick. And it, this would be a fun read. That sounds great. <laughs> Someone who has made similar poor life decisions and made an adventure out of it. Yes. <laughs> well, if that's your take on it, but I definitely didn't say it. Okay, totally different. Have you ever read anything by Amitav Ghosh? I have not. Okay, I'm thinking about The Glass Palace. And what I like about this for you is it almost seems like the fictional equivalent of those history books that you're drawn to at the bookstore. 
This is a novel that it's not as big as books come, but it's 500 pages and it is packed. So much happens in this story. It spans generations. It goes from the late 19th century to just about the present day. And this is a tale of Burma, basically. So here's a line from review that I think might be calling your name. Solid, old-fashioned historical fiction that careens through the century, embracing a cast of characters whose lives unfold so gracefully that before you know it, you've also witnessed the tragic tale of modern Burma. That does sound good. Okay. What I like about this for you is it's rooted in real life. They're dealing with actual political issues, which does make me a little nervous because sometimes when you know so much about a topic, if there are errors, then it's going to be really, (laughs) really annoying. But to my not doctorate holding brain, it seems to do a good job. We meet an 11-year-old boy, housemaid, grandfathers, and sisters and political figures and how their lives are all intertwined. And I also really like for you how it takes actual historical events rooted in time and place and shows how they may have impacted these fictional characters. So the events of history are firm in Ghosh's novel, but he imagines these characters and plunks them into his story. And you get to see how those big picture events that you like to read about impact fictional, but still how they impact individuals. How does that sound? Oh, that, that sounds fantastic. Okay. Do you know that Scott Anderson wrote a novel? I mean, he's written several. Uh, no, I don't. I, I didn't look at his other books. I usually do when I enjoy an author's book, but I don't know what else he's written. He has this book called Moonlight Hotel. The protagonist is kind of Ethan Gage-like <laughs> for good and for ill. You know what that means? (laughs) This is a novel about the Middle East and specifically American intervention in that region. Um, It's got a little bit of a satirical tone sometimes. How are you with that? I'm okay with that. Okay. So he sets a story in the fictional Arab state of Qatar in the early 80s. And I didn't realize when I first learned of Lawrence in Arabia that Anderson was a war correspondent. So he knows a lot about the situation he's writing of here. So he takes his protagonist, who is also a member of the, I think he's a member of the diplomatic corps, but he's a 30-something womanizing diplomat. So he is sent in because, as we know, there are longstanding tensions in the Middle East. But then those tensions suddenly escalate, and he sees how practically overnight a situation that was under control gets very uh, blustery, especially with a couple of generals. And so the Ethan Gage character sees what's happening and is terrified that the U.S. is going to create a mess and cut and run and leave somebody else to clean it up. And he thinks that cannot happen. So he's maybe not the best of men. And then he gets called upon, he feels, to prevent a real tragedy. How does that sound to you? I like characters that rise to a challenge. That, that sounds good. Well, you can decide how successfully he does it. <laughs> and then I'm really curious about writing that is similar to what you read all the time, but not quite the same. Have you ever read anything by Sebastian Younger? Uh, he wrote Tribe, correct? He did. I know about that and I've read some passages of it, but I, I have not read any complete works of his. Did you like what you read? Uh, yes, I just keep thinking about the way he writes about issues and situations that we all know exist, 
but he thinks are completely misunderstood. So The Perfect Storm is about people affected by the history-making horrible Nor'eastern in the early 90s off the coast of New England. In Tribe, the subtitle is On Homecoming and Belonging, because I know you like your subtitles. And he writes about what it really means to live in community, not in a touchy-feely suburban way, but in a, I went to war and I saw what happened when men in platoons live so, so tightly together. I mean, they have their people and then they disperse and go home and you think that would be happy, but it wrecks people because their community has so desperately shifted. And then I really like for you, War is the name of the book. And I'm really sorry. I do not know the subtitle off the top of my head, but Young are embedded with a platoon in a very bloody corner of Afghanistan during the conflict in the mid 2000s, the the aughts, and he experienced everything they did. He lived with them and he watched them go off to fight and he reported on what happened. And he said that he just never understood how exciting war was. But he says that until you understand what it's like to be in that setting, you can't understand what it's like to, to leave it or what it does to a person, how important it is to understand all these things, because we're all affected by war, even though very few of us will actually ever go into combat. And the way he writes about issues that you, in theory, like, you know exist. Like, this is happening right now, but you have no idea what it really means. It's almost like he's giving you a language to talk and think about things that you didn't have before. And that's what I like about that for you. And he writes more in an essay style. You know, he's not writing like a 500-page book on one topic, typically. He's writing more a series of reflections uh, my head has been bobbing the entire time, so you can't hear that, but that's, uh, that sounds very interesting, and I, I will pick that up. Jordan, am I on the right track with those? How do those sound to you? Those all sound great. Of those, however many titles that was, what do you think you want to pick up next? I think I'm going to start with Glass Palace. I can't wait to hear what you think. Jordan, thanks so much for talking books with me today. Thank you so much, Anne. I appreciate it. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jordan today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Jordan and let him know there what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 127, that's 127, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. This week, Jordan and I talked about how difficult it can be to start giving up on books. Next week, I'm talking to reader Tracy Haddock, who is much, much more comfortable quitting a bad book. Here's a sneak peek of our conversation about the perils of Goodreads star ratings. I just found contemporary fiction a crapshoot. Yes. The best description of it for me, too, and just how you described getting out of school and not having things assigned, and then you you strike out. You realize, I don't really know what I want to read. And then, of course, Goodreads came along, more blogs and podcasts about reading, and now I'm like, oh, it has to be five stars. I, I'm like, I don't even have time for bad contemporary fiction, you know? I'm really stingy with my stars. Actually, I don't like to assign star ratings at all, but when I do, I am really stingy. Are you? I am I am more stingy than I used to be. I just think anybody writing a book is clearly superior to me. So I hate to give them a three star, but you've helped me to understand that it's not for you. You know, it's not, you're not trying to say it was poorly written or the author didn't put in enough effort or anything. And so now I am more stingy with my stars. And I'm like, no, that has to speak to my soul before I'll give it a five stars, you know? And then the other ones are like, I liked it. 
it was it was fine. And that's not to denigrate the author's efforts at all. I hear you. But on Goodreads, I used to be stingy. And now when I do rate books on Goodreads, I'm having a conversation with myself about moving the opposite direction. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> Tune in next Tuesday to hear the rest of that conversation and much, much more. Make sure you're subscribed to What Should I Read Next on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Readers, for the latest What Should I Read Next updates, subscribe to our newsletter. It's free, it's weekly at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. If you are on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at What Should I Read Next and at Ann Bogle. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.